June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We all have busy lives these days, and we don't want to waste a day recovering after a night out. That's why Zbiotics is the answer we've all been looking for. Their probiotic was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Pre-alcohol produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. This is a proactive solution that wards off feeling miserable the next day instead of a reactive approach like drinking electrolytes or eating greasy food. Enhance your mornings with Zbiotics. Go to zbiotics.com/cbs to get 15% off your first order when you use code CBS at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/cbs and use the code CBS at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Linda Weisgold is CIA's top analyst and Dave Marlowe is its top operations officer. They joined me last week at George Mason University's Michael Hayden Center for a conversation about their careers, global hotspots, and the future of CIA. Today, we bring you, our listeners, that conversation. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morell, and this is Intelligence Matters. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is really special. It's really special to be on stage with you guys. We were colleagues for so long. It's not very often that a serving deputy director for analysis and a serving deputy director for operations speak publicly, and I don't think they've ever been together on a stage before. This is really cool. Not that we can talk about. Not that you can talk about. <laughs> um, See how it goes. It may be the last time. <laughs> <laughs> I want to break the conversation into kind of three chunks. One, I want to talk about your careers. I think students will want to hear about that. 
I want to talk a little bit about some of the hotspots in the world today, and then I want to talk about kind of the CIA going forward. But before we get into all that, let me ask each of you, Linda, what is the fundamental responsibility of an analyst at CIA? And Dave, what's the fundamental responsibility of an operations officer? First of all, thank you all uh, for coming and for letting us have this opportunity. You know, when I think about what is at the heart of CIA's analytic mission, um, it really is about delivering objective analysis about the world to some of the most important people in it. So, you know, we are looking overseas. We're following individuals and groups and trends beyond our borders that affect our national security. And I think it's really important to highlight, as an analyst at CIA, you inform. You do not make policy. So, you know, that was part of why President Truman set up the CIA in 1947. We try to go beyond what's happening to examine why it's happening and then to talk about the implications of that. We try to give our leaders a decision advantage by pointing out leverage that they may have. And when it's done right, I guess what I would say is uh, we give those we serve, starting with the president, new ways to think about dangers and opportunities around the world, whether that topic is an enduring one, an emerging one, or one that's way over the horizon. So, Dave? Thanks also for the opportunity to be here. Thanks, Michael, for hosting us. The fundamental job of an operations officer, as I see it, is that we go overseas to somebody else's country and we understand them in their circumstances and in their world as they see themselves. And we're an apolitical organization. I like to say that the difference between policy and intelligence is that policy is about how you want the world to be. Intelligence is about how it is. And our job is to go to other people's countries, see them in their environment, see how they understand their problems, see how they see us, and understand what it is that's in their minds and bring some piece of that back that's useful for Linda's folks to digest. So one more question before we get to the career discussion. You know, movies, TV series, paint CIA in certain ways. You know, what is it really like on a day-to-day basis to work at CIA? Dave, why don't you go first on this one? There's fewer cocktails and tuxedos, for sure. <laughs> um, I can't think of a spy movie I've seen that I thought was a, an honest depiction. We're methodical, meticulous. We take our responsibility seriously. We're deliberate and disciplined. There's no flash, very rarely flash anyway. And we're playing a long, careful game. We're not kind of running something that can be accomplished in 90 minutes of a movie. We're doing things that are over the long term. And if we're leaving a splash, we've made a, a series of mistakes. Our job is to do what we're doing in the, in the director of operations and not leave a trace that we've been there. So I'm not a big fan of spy movies because I find them really frustrating. Like Dave, I think I find that they're very distorted. I once, when I was a briefer, uh, after I'd been a briefer, I once was overseas, and a liaison partner of ours very seriously asked me if my job as the president's briefer had been like, there was a series that had been done called The Briefer with Katherine Hagel, mm-hmm. um, in which she would like brief the president in the morning, jump on a plane, jump out of the plane, go kill someone, and he was asking me, was your job really like that? And I told him, absolutely. Uh, so... Um, <laughs> But when you really do ask, like, what is our job like? For me, working at CIA, it is a form of public service. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember. The place is filled with some of the most 
intelligent, most interesting, most determined people you are ever going to meet. And not once in my career, and as was mentioned, it's been a long one, not once did any, has anyone ever asked me what my politics are, and I don't ask other people, because that's not what we're there for. We are all there united, I think, in one mission, which is the protection of the United States. And that makes it really special. You know, people cry when they leave CIA. And so I think that's something really important to think about. So, but if you get back to the movies, you know, someday I still do want a computer where I can like manipulate it in the air. And I notice that no one ever has to fill out like a travel voucher or, you know, we, there is a bureaucratic side to it. We are a government agency. So I do think there's a little bit of that. So, you know, again, it's a special place, uh, but it's one that takes you wanting to be there and everyone else around you wants to be there as well. Okay, so your careers, how did you each find your way to CIA? Linda, why don't you go first? So I always knew I wanted to do something international. I graduated from Georgetown School of Foreign Service. I had lived overseas, but CIA wasn't actually on my, my radar. So I often joke that my coming to CIA was really about serendipity and a lack of a social life. Because I had a roommate at the time who worked for a congresswoman on the Hill, and this was the mid-'80s. And my roommate was very much into women in leadership. She worked for Congresswoman Pat Schroeder. And she had bought tickets to a, a seminar that was going on about women in leadership. And something came up, and she couldn't make it. And so she asked me, did I want to go? And not, I was free. I didn't have much of a social life. So um, I said, sure. So I go to this session, and it was a two-day session. And over the night, there was a hijacking in Athens. And all kinds of people were talking about giving up their tickets. They were on the news, and they were talking about giving up their tickets to go to Athens. And I remember I came in, and I said, are you kidding me? I'd, I'd go. And she said, really? And I said, it's not going to happen in the same place twice, right? Sure, I'd get on the next plane. And it turns out that this uh, individual, and again, mid-'80s, she was already teaching women in leadership courses for the agency. And she said, I have some people you should talk to. Mm. And she directed me there. The second part of the story goes, so I called thinking that I was going to be having an informational interview, um, more with the idea that uh, back then we didn't have the luxury of the website, which we're going to mention several times tonight, of you know, CIA.gov. Uh, so I thought I was calling up to get an informational interview. And the guy said, oh, Jinx said you should call. He said, we're having a test next weekend. I, again, wasn't busy, so, <laughs> so I showed up for the test and hadn't filled out any paperwork. This would never happen today. And apparently did really well on the test because they then started calling me, asking me to please fill out the paperwork, and here we have job officers. So it was total serendipity. Yeah. I will just add, when I tell this story in our organization, one of the things I say is that be open to opportunities when they come. You're gonna, if you end up at CIA or whatever your careers might be, there's gonna be a lot of times when someone's gonna come to you and say, hey, would you do this? And it may not have been, for those of you who are planners, it may not have been on your five-year plan, it may not have been what you were thinking. And what I say is that you are going to learn the most from those jobs that you probably weren't thinking about. And you will get all kinds of experiences and it may set you on a totally different path. So be open to opportunities when they come. Uh, here, here, Dave. So uh, I graduated from William & Mary in 1984, and my objective in college had been basically to get out alive. And, and so the, the, the summer, 
After I graduated, I started thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. I talked to the parents of uh, some friends who worked in the in various national security roles. Uh, I traveled through Europe, and I came back with kind of a, a job description of what I wanted to do. I wanted to be doing something, working overseas, out of an embassy maybe, something in national security, something that was results-oriented, and something that wasn't in the spotlight, which kind of brought me to the director of operations. So I talked to some adults that I respected and, and laid out a path for myself, which was to go into the Army, to go into the military, and I chose the Army, and get some kind of background experience that would make me more marketable than, than where I was at the time. So I enlisted so that I could pick my particular path. They taught me Arabic for about a year and a half in California, and then I went to SIGINT school, and I, I spent uh, the next couple of years in the Army. And I ended up coming here in uh, 1991, right after the Gulf War. So outside your current jobs, what's the best assignment you ever had at CIA, Dave? So I'm not allowed to say where, but um, I've, I have a number of assignments in the Middle East, and in some of those places, nobody spoke English at all. And if you can go live in, in a country that's sort of unadulterated by the Western experience, it's something absolutely different from you know, going to Europe, which is like... America, but they don't speak English. Um, and it was, it was just fantastic. I lived on local food. I, I lived in Arabic every day. I, I knew the names of all the different kinds of fish and the fish market and the fruits and vegetables and all that kind of stuff. I was part spy, part diplomat, part adventurer, part anthropologist, part sociologist, and just having an absolute blast. So... I said, you know, I've had a ton of amazing opportunities. I've actually followed you in several jobs. And I think, though, that uh, first I want to say why I've been at CIA so long, because it does get to kind of what my favorite job has been. You know, CIA is about your capability, not your rank. And so one of my very first jobs, I was, uh, my account was an account in the Middle East. I was working on Lebanon. And I had only been on the count for a very short period of time, a couple of months, when the Sunni prime minister was assassinated. And my part of the account was I was following, among other things, the Sunnis. They were considered kind of the less important account. What amazed me at the time was that I was not asked to hand over my research to a more senior officer. It was me. I was front and center. And I was hooked. I was hooked from the very beginning that it was about your capability. So I guess I would say you can't be more front and center at CIA than being the president's briefer. And I would say that was probably my favorite job because it really was a tremendous honor to be the one to go in every morning to represent the work of the agency, um, whether that be the analytic work, the operational work, to be the one to kind of see history happening, how intelligence was really being used every day, how important it was, you know, how relevant it was to be, make the timing window right, all of those kinds of things. It made me a better analyst. And so I guess what I really saw was that, you know, how intelligence informs the policy debate, and that would probably be my favorite job. Yeah. So probably the two most important career-related questions that we're going to talk about. Number one, what advice would you give to, to any student here who might be interested in a career as an analyst or an operations officer? Linda. Okay, so this is where you're going to see the difference, one of the differences between the DO and the DA. I brought notes because <laughs> I wanted to make sure that I gave you guys really good advice. Um, I didn't forget anything. 
So first off, I'm really thrilled. And I'm just going to copy hers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> he stole the information and gave it to me. It was fine. Um, so I'm really thrilled you're asking about a career as an analyst. Um, but I really would be remiss if I didn't talk about the other directorates as well. And to really highlight the idea that at CIA, we are looking for people who do all kinds of things. You know, we ha hire for almost every imaginable skill, graphic artists, accountants, engineers, logisticians, data scientists. So it's about more than just our directorates. And again, if you don't hear something that from us, go to the website because there's all kinds of opportunities. So first, if you're currently a student and you have time before you graduate, I highly encourage you to participate in our student programs. It is the perfect opportunity for you to get a chance to look at us and for us to get a chance to look at you. Like I said, it was a black box when I joined. It was kind of a leap of faith. But this is something that gives you that opportunity to really understand what, what it would be like. In the director of analysis, if you are a student intern or a grad, grad fellow, you are doing the exact work of an analyst. You're writing for the president. You're just getting more help um, in doing it. So we're not going to ask you to make coffee or go make copies or anything like that. You are an analyst. So if you want to do that, you should try and get your resumes in by the end of this year for next summer. Um, it does take some time. I also want to point out that we're in the process of hopefully rolling out soon a bit of a change in how you apply. And so rather than being an application, it will be a resume-based system. So I want to tell you it's okay to have a beefy resume. Like two pages are good. I know that may be counterintuitive for some jobs. But it really is a way for us to kind of get to know you a little bit more, and particularly as a student when you may not have as many job experiences, we're going to be looking at some of the traits that you have. So it'll help us understand the depth and the breadth and your skills. Uh, just a couple more things. Don't be afraid to show passion and enthusiasm for this choice. So the people who will be interviewing you at CIA, they're not professional recruiters. They are officers. And so for us, it is, they are analysts who are on rotation trying to make sure that we are bringing in for the next generation, the best and the brightest. So if you talk to them about patriotism and about really why you want to come, it's not going to sound corny to them. Right? It's the same reasons that they came. So like I said, don't be afraid to show that passion and enthusiasm. And then last thing I'll just say is stop doing marijuana at least 90 days before you come. We do still follow the federal law guidelines. So while it may be legal in Maryland and other places, we should follow federal law. So. Dave. <laughs> <laughs> the one piece of advice I give you about coming to the Directorate of Operations, and I'm sure this is true for, for all the directorates, is if, if coming to the CIA is, is your plan B or your sort of fallback thing that you're going to do if something else doesn't work out, that is the wrong approach. We have, for every 100 applicants that we receive, it's a very small percentage that actually make it through to be rehired, probably less than 5%. And the people who, who get through, get through because they're determined. And so if you apply now or this summer and you don't get through the process, you're sent a very nice no thank you letter, that doesn't mean you should quit. What it means is you should think about, is this what I really want to do? And if it is what you really want to do, then go out and build your resume and add some life experience. So what life experience and what do you put on your resume? I'll tell you, we hire all kinds of people. And the kinds of people that you would predict, somebody who's had military experience 
our business experience, or we hire people who are out of law school. All those things are true, but we've also, we also have had, I'm not sure if he's still with us, a world famous rock and roll guitarist, professional athletes, ballet dancers, college professors, people that, that are not what you imagine would end up working in, in the directorate of operations. And what they've all brought is not necessarily the things that are on their resume, but a determination, a determination to win and resilience. And those, that's what we're looking for in the director of operations. If you're a DO officer, you have to be comfortable when you've kind of fallen back to plan G, that you're already forming the elements of plan L and plan M because you're gonna have to adapt. And, and so really that's the most important thing for us is determination and resilience. And then of course, as Linda will probably tell you as well, integrity. We're entrusted with a great deal of responsibility that's unique to us. And whether it's me having tens of thousands of dollars in cash to hand to somebody in an alley for a very, you know, sort of minimal receipt, or Linda sitting in front of the president and saying, this is a thing I know and this is a thing I don't know, integrity is absolutely paramount. So I'll speak from experience. It's great to have one of those former professional athletes on your intramural basketball team. <laughs> very, very helpful to winning. Um, so, so, so Dave answered the second question already, which is, you know, what do you look for in terms of a skill set? What about an analyst? What do you look for? So, um, you know, a lot of them are things you'd expect: strong writing, strong briefing, intellectual curiosity, thoughtfulness, and definitely integrity. You know, what we do is high stakes, as Dave said, and it involves really sensitive information. And telling policymakers things that they don't want to hear, that, that takes some courage. And so again, that integrity, and it's something we can't teach. And so it's something you need to show us when you, you know, before you get hired. Expertise is absolutely important. It's the coin of the realm for the director of analysis. So either show that you have some in a discipline, like, you know, I don't know, you're a kick-ass economist, or you are, you know, a military analyst, or that you have some substantive expertise, whether you are, you know, a quantum physicist, or you have expertise in Latin America. Again, we're looking for something that you can use to develop the insight that we provide. Language skills, of course, are a plus for the entire agency, as is overseas uh, experiences. You know, I would say diversity of thought is really important to diversity as a whole. We can't afford to have groupthink. So I look for people who actually may have sometimes the outside of the box thinking or the kind of come from left field ideas. And then the last one I'll just say is humility. It's really important. What we do is hard. We are not going to get it right all the time. We have to admit when we're wrong. We have to think about when it's time to actually reevaluate and adjust our analysis. And you're not always the smartest person in the room, right? So you have to be open to the ideas. What we do is a lot of teamwork. So I often like to say that thinking may be a solitary skill, but analysis is not. So we need people who are team players and have the humility to, to be open to ideas from others. Great. Can, can I just follow up sure. on that and pick yeah. up on something that sure. Linda said? I remember very well being in my, in my late teens and early 20s and trying to figure out who I was. And I think it's important that when you're looking at a, a potential career at CIA, you know what motivates you. And you're not going to get paid as well as you can if you go into the private sector. 
and there are going to be demands placed on you that, that normal people don't have to deal with. Some of it has to do with your freedom of movement. You have to tell people when you're going places there you can't bring your phone into the office. There's, there's a lot that you surrender, including the potential for a fat paycheck when you come to work for CIA. And the folks who do it and do it well are genuinely motivated by patriotism and not the kind of patriotism that just shows up on the 4th of July, the patriotism that drives you when things are difficult or mundane or scary or professionally challenging. And if that's what drives you, then you probably have a place here. If you're thinking, well, I can do this for a little bit and then make some money, this is not the place. We're going to take a quick break, then we'll be right back with more of your discussion with Linda and Dave. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's turn to kind of global hotspots, the world today, mm-hmm. which we could talk about for hours, right? So I want to do this, you know, a little bit differently than, than I would normally do this. What I'd like to do is just throw out an issue and just get each of you to respond, you know, fairly quickly, fairly briefly on what you think is the most important thing that all of us should keep in mind with regard to that issue. Dave. I want to go to the operator. Russia's invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> I'll tell you what this looks like to the director of operations. I, in, I'm not an analyst, so I can assess it. At, yes, at, you can. At will. Um, <laughs> Putin was at his best moment the day before he invaded because he had all the coercive power that he's ever going to have. And his objectives were to squeeze things out of Ukraine, to threaten NATO and, and affect NATO unification, and to show off to the world that Russia is, a, is powerful militarily, economically, and diplomatically. He squandered every single bit of that. And so for the director of operations, we're looking around the world for Russians who are as disgusted with that as we are because we're open for business. Linda? I guess I would say that you know, it's important to know Putin has not given up on the expansive goals uh, that he had for Ukraine. So Putin hasn't given up. This isn't going to end anytime soon. I think this could certainly drag on. It's important. I think a lesson we all need to take, it's really important to know what you're fighting for. The Ukrainian soldiers know that. The Russian soldiers, not so much. And then I just think, you know, again, that interconnectedness. Allowing a country to take territory just because they can is likely to embolden others to do the same at a really high human cost. Okay, now China-Taiwan. Linda, you go first. Me first. Okay. On China-Taiwan, I guess the things to think about, as I was saying, she is certainly watching what's going on. 
and he has not been shy about the idea that he wants to have control of Taiwan, even if that requires military movements to do so. I think one of the things that's really important for us to think about is China has graduated, if you will, from being a rising power to really being the largest, most important geopolitical issue for us. And it's because I think really what we're seeing is China in so many domains, more than the Cold War and Russia, is now a competitor. So whether we're talking about militarily, economically, through technology, space, in just about every domain you can think of, China is a competitor with us now. And I think that that is something for us to think about when we think about, about China. Dave. I would just add that five, 10 years ago, everybody was being polite about the competition with China. And now it's, it's plain and it's in the open. It's the challenge of the next generation of intelligence officers. Can I just add one other thing, which is that, you know, we talked about languages. It sure wouldn't hurt if you want to go learn Mandarin. So, you know, for years it's been uh, the, the agency, and we're not alone in this in the government, we are putting a lot more resources to working on China. And so we've created a new China Mission Center. Uh, we're looking at China is now a, trying to be a global power. And so we're looking at, you know, China in Africa, China in Latin America, China. So again, regardless of maybe what your area of expertise, if you're thinking regionally, if it is Latin America or Africa, it doesn't hurt for you to also learn about China because that's something for us that we, we are all thinking about them globally. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. So Iran's behavior, whether it's toward its own people, whether it's toward its regional neighbors, whether it's about nuclear weapons, Linda. I think the thing I would say about Iran at this point, a couple of things. One, we do not believe, we do not assess right now that Iran is in the process of making a nuclear weapon. But what we do assess is that Iran is doing more and more to be ready to make a nuclear weapon. So whether it be improving their enrichment capabilities, they are exceeding all of the limits that were part of the JCPOA. And so I think that that's an important thing for us to think about with, with Iran. I think it's important when we talk about Iran to remember that Iran is a threat not ju just to U.S. interests, but to the interests of our allies in the region. And that is also something that we care about. We don't just talk about U.S. national security interests. We talk about the interests of our allies as well. And then in the context of the current protests that are ongoing, 
I think it's really important when you think about Iran to think through the fact that you know, we talk about moderates and reformers and conservative, but it's all in the context of a conservative theocracy. So when you talk about a moderate in Iran, it's not necessarily someone who is uh, looking to have a democratic freedom of speech, all of those kinds of things. I remember President Bush used to ask me um, when we would talk about Iran, he would say, you know, it's not a free and fair election. Can they stand up in the middle of a town square and say whatever they want to say as part of that? He said, until they can do that, it's not a free and fair election. And it still isn't today. Dave, a lot of time in the Middle East. Your thoughts on this? Iran is fascinating. Back to what I said earlier about going to other people's countries and understanding them as they understand themselves. You've got a theocracy with an apocalyptic vision as their, their modern government. You've got echoes of their Persian past. And then you've got the conflict between Shia and Sunni that sort of defines their relationship with their neighbors, whether they're Sunni neighbors or mixed neighbors like they are in Iraq. It's, it's absolutely a fascinating human intelligence challenge to understand what's happening there and where are the levers and where are the opportunities for the U.S. government. Yeah. North Korea and its flurry of missile tests. Dave? I just think they're a petulant child having a tantrum. I'm sorry. Look at me. <laughs> look at me. We're still here. I think it's a, the most closed society on the planet and even more so with the COVID lockdown. The image of the Russian diplomats working their way out on the that old-fashioned train, rail car, yeah. It's an extremely hard intelligence problem, not insurmountable. Uh, I would just add, I totally agree, North Korea doesn't like to be ignored, and they will find ways to make sure that we're paying attention. But back to that kind of interconnectedness, uh, I think it's really important to think about the idea that for North Korea, what China thinks and does is actually more important than what we do in some ways. They are very dependent upon China for a lot. And so sometimes when you work an issue... It's not just about knowing that issue. You need to know what's going on in the region. You need to know what others, um, how others think about a country like North Korea. International terrorism in the aftermath of Afghanistan. So I'll keep it short on that and just say the threat is not gone. And um, we have made tremendous uh, strides in diminishing that threat, but it's not over. And we can't afford to take our eye off the ball. And we're not going to. Okay. And as a, as a Wahri would tell you, you can't hide. <laughs> Excellent. We can find you. Excellent. So let's, let's switch gears again and talk about sort of the future of the organization. And it struck me when early on, the first question, right, I asked you, what's the job of an analyst? What's the job of an operations officer? Your answer was true 75 years ago, and it's true today, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to start by actually asking you, what are the keys to successful analysis? What are the keys to successful operations? And how do you make sure in the future that those factors remain in place? I don't know who wants to go first. So, you know, how we do our jobs as CIA analysts is I think what sets us apart from whether it be the media or think tanks. They're they're important. I don't see them as competitors. It's just we do our jobs very differently. And I think what makes successful analysis, we rely on three privileged accesses. The first is access to the time, the thinking, and you know the goals of our country's leaders. That is what allows us to understand what they need and when they need it. The second is access to a vast range of information. We are all source analysts, so that includes unclassified and classified information. 
And that information really gives us this huge sandbox to develop insights, hopefully unique insights. And then it's the access to CIA's reputation. CIA's reputation gets us a seat at the table. It gets a chance to be heard. But all of those are grants of trust. They are not grants of power. They are things that we have to be, I think, cognizant of all the time. And we have to be living up to that. What's the reputation so, you're talking about? So the reputation I'm talking about really comes from, I think, our tradecraft. And that's that when we are going to, as I said earlier, we're going to call it like we see it. We're going to be objective. We're going to be honest about telling people what we know, what we don't know. But often when I talk about tradecraft, I boil it down to the idea, it's about being able to tell our customers why we think what we think. And that's really hard, right? If you guys try and unpack that as students and you're thinking about this from you know, a, a paper you're writing, to actually go back and, and be able to explain to a professor why you think that. And then I'll add an extra twist to this. You know, several years later, when you're sitting in front of Congress and you're being grilled on why you thought what you thought for some inevitable you know, investigation, to be able to do that too, I, that's the kind of reputation I, I'm talking about. I yeah. think you know, yeah. we have to be able to do that. Yeah. Dave. So I think for operations officers, it's the same kinds of traits, but in a, in a different scenario. We need to, you really need to be humble. You need to be dispassionate and objective. And if you think about what we do, so we say that we spy, but what we really do is we have relationships with people who spy and we give them some kind of compensation in exchange for that. And so if we're going to invite somebody into a relationship where they're risking prison or death when they're betraying their tribe or their institution or their country because they believe in what they're doing with us, we have to be very judicious about that. And we have, to be, we have to know what we're doing and why we're doing it. We have to be sure that we should be doing it in the first place, that we're after something that can only be obtained through our, our unique function. So ultimately, it, it comes down to being honest with yourself and being honest about the situation you're in. Am I doing this the right way? Should I be doing this? What part of this relationship is about me and what part of it is about the agent? It really requires cold-blooded, dispassionate objectivity. And it's really not any different than when Linda's folks are figuring out, what am I saying here to the president? And Dave, I just want to say and get you to respond to this. When we go into a relationship with one of those individuals, their security is paramount. It's, it's our top priority, absolutely. And we're... If we fail on that, we're failing fundamentally. Yeah. Last question. The challenges going forward, right, for each of your professions, each of your directorates, how do you think about what the big challenges are that you have to deal with successfully in order for the agency to continue to be successful? Dave. I would say two things. The first is that the world is a, a much more in intrusive space. It used to be when I was a young officer, I could fly to a country, take a train across the border to another country, check into some hostel, scribble my name on the register, pay in cash, meet my guy, and leave. And I was never there. And now if you travel any place, you haven't, don't have a reservation, you're not using a credit card, you don't have your smartphone with you, you haven't been scanned in every imaginable way all along your trip, that's anomalous. 
we have to actually raise our prioritization so that we're really expanding that risk on things that truly, truly matter. The other thing that, that I am concerned about that we talk about regularly is all the relationships that we built up over the past 20 years that allowed us to be effective in the counterterrorism effort. We absolutely need those if we are to work in a unified way against our principal adversary now, and that's China. Linda? I guess I would say we are swimming in data and information, and technology is a great thing. It should help us. It also is going to increase the difficulty of us figuring out misinformation. And so part of our job is really going to be this idea of leveraging technology to our advantage and at the same time, making sure that we are kind of sorting through, you know, what should we be believing and what shouldn't we you know, as we work through things. So the changes the director made, I don't know, 18 months ago now, the media focused on the creation of the China Mission Center, but it kind of missed, right, the creation yeah. of a chief technology officer, the creation of a new directorate focused on technology. So huge, huge emphasis, seems to me, on technology at the agency to help you do your job, to protect you in doing your job, right? Could you just talk about that for 30 seconds each? Absolutely. Dave and I actually spent some time together in a meeting on this very topic. And the idea being looking at things on, as you said, how can we, you know, when I think about technology from the uh, analyst point of view, it is a topic that we study, right? So we're looking at emerging technology, new weapons systems, all of those kinds of things. So that's set that aside. We've always been doing that. But looking at technology on how we can leverage and take advantage of what's happening in open source. But at the same time, as I said earlier, this idea that we have to be able to explain to people why we think what we think. And if we don't understand the algorithm that is being used by AI, I don't think the president's going to be very accepting if I were to go in and say, so the black box just told me so, right? And I, I don't know why it said that. Um, so being able to really understand, again, applying our tradecraft in this new, brave new world of technology um, is, I think, something that's really important for us to work at. And then, of course, the CI issues that we, we talked yeah. about. Dave, anything to add? I would say we're users of technology on offense. We're concerned about technology on defense, and we collect on technological issues. And then we have been, CIA has traditionally been a driver of innovative technologies. And we had a former director who was an Air Force general before he showed up and wanted to park a plane outside, which is the predecessor to the SR-71, as a visible demonstration of that fact. Can I plug the website again one more time? Because there's a great, there's a lot of really cool information on there for our 75th anniversary. And one of them is a, a list of technology that probably wouldn't exist if CIA hadn't invented it. So you can thank us for the battery in your cell phone that kind of small lithium battery, that was us. And there's a whole long list of the other kinds of inventions that came out of CIA. Linda, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. That was Linda Weiskold and Dave Marlowe. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News.
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. If you're listening to this podcast, then chances are good you are a fan of The Strange, Dark, and Mysterious. And if that's true, then you're in luck. Because, once again, Mr. Ballin Podcast, Strange, Dark, and Mysterious Stories is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Each week on the Mr. Ballin Podcast, you'll hear new stories about inexplicable encounters, shocking disappearances, true crime cases, and everything in between. Like our recent episode titled White Dust. After a middle-aged couple fail to answer their daughter's messages and calls, the daughter drives the few hours to her parents' house to check on them, but after arriving and seeing both her parents' cars in the driveway, the daughter gets an uneasy feeling and just can't stomach going inside. To hear the rest of that story and hear hundreds more stories like it, follow Mr. Ballin Podcast on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. Prime members can listen early and ad-free on Amazon Music.